I think the best advice I can give is for people to reach out a bit and maybe put themselves at some personal risk by engaging with sectors that may at the moment feel like they are the other and maybe get involved with those people and know what motivates them because this remains a joint effort for all of us to work in collaboration. We are all in this social contract. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. I'm thrilled to introduce this episode's Coffee Pod guest, Sam Moston. Now, Sam is one of Australia's most prolific businesswomen. And I'm, in fact, I'm going to struggle to condense her bio down to this introduction, but I'm going to have a red hot go. After many years in senior corporate management roles in telecom, broadcast and insurance, nowadays Sam serves as a non-executive director on the boards of Virgin Australia, Transurban, Mervac and chairs Citibank Australia. For the past four years, she's been the president of the Australian Council for International Development and she's also the Deputy Chair of the Diversity Council of Australia. From 2005 to 2016, she served as a Commissioner with the Australian Football League, the first woman appointed to that role, and it's something we're going to touch on in the conversation today. Nowadays, she serves on the board of the Sydney Swans, and she's also been appointed the AFLW's Cup Ambassador this year for her contribution to women in AFL. She's had an incredibly significant role in the global conversation around the Sustainable Development Goals. As you'll pick up from our chat, she's a deep systems thinker and influencer. And I should add, if you're keen to connect with Sam, the best place is on Twitter, at Sam Mostyn. You'll be able to find and converse with her there. So let's kick off. Here's Sam Mostyn. Sam Austin, I'm so thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, when I think of people who I associate with change, uh, with passion, with the ability to deliver arguments of conviction that open eyes, that open ears, that persuade minds, I can't go past you. Uh, and so it, it means a lot to me that we're going to have the opportunity to tap into the insights that you've garnered over the course of your career today. I really wanted to kick off, though, with, with understanding sort of where this passion for sustainability and diversity and the community, really. Where did that begin for you? Uh, thanks, Holly, and thanks for being so kind in your introduction. Um, look, I think most people have some story that starts in childhood, and so mine goes back to being raised in a, a busy household. I'm the oldest of four girls, and my father was in the Australian Army and we travelled a lot, and it meant, I think, for the oldest, being the oldest child, it meant we were moving a lot, changing schools, and I had three younger siblings um, who I cared about a lot. And I was my sisters always described me as having been born thirty, so I must have been <laughs> a kind of you know one of those daggy kids who had responsibility, a sense of responsibility early. Unfortunately, that, that now makes me around about um, just over eighty. So something um, <laughs> now, but if I think back to those early days, a family that was on the move all the time, a large a largish family. And my father, because of his army service, instilled in us a sense of um, stepping up and, and, and sort of understanding what service meant. Not, not that he wanted us to join the army and by any stretch, but um, his was about a, a particular kind of service and I observed in him a set of values and principles about uh, really about doing the right thing and, and integrity and he, he and my mum raised us that way. And I think there was a, 
the further thing that just jumped in as I was still quite young was the arrival of my youngest sister, Sally, who has an intellectual disability. And, you know, we had been a fairly self-satisfied family, you know, all the girls doing well. And then Sally arrived and we were, we were, it was, this was in the 70s. As a family, we had to reorient and think about what life would mean for mm. Sally and what life meant for anyone with an intellectual disability at that time. There weren't a lot of services um, around. And as a family, we pivoted and adjusted. And um, I th- again, I think as the oldest sibling, I, I, I took on, a, um, along with my sisters, a responsibility to make sure Sally's uh, life was fantastic and good and in- she was included. But we were also then introduced to a whole area of disability and disability services, and we met a lot of young people um, who had different forms of um, of their own intellectual or physical disability. So from a very young age, we were amongst people who were not like us, and and we learned, and we we did a lot of volunteering, and um, and again under my mother and father's sort of tutelage, I, I became very very conscious of the fact that I had such privilege, and you know being able bodied, having um, having the life I, I was experiencing. It, it came with great privilege and, and I think I just, I think for all of us as a family, we, we learned early on that there are always others who um, who should be in your mind and in consciousness. What I think I now have is a, a sort of a bit of a radar system. I, I never assume that when I'm in a set of circumstances that I know what's really going on or I, I can fully appreciate everyone in the room because everyone has these stories. Um, you know, my, my family story is not, isn't unique. It just happens to be mine. And uh, it did teach me early on that everybody um, in any environment, a workplace, any organisation, our politics, um, there are stories everywhere. And to sit and listen and appreciate that before jumping to judgement or assuming, you know, what to do in any circumstance before listening and reflecting, that, that has stayed very deeply with me. That's such a powerful early lesson and I think a great one that all of us need to be cognizant of reminding ourselves on an ongoing basis too. And when I look at your career, you you have packed an extraordinary amount of good work into your career and you've, you've had some pretty remarkable roles, including being an associate to Justice Kirby, working for Paul Keating. Was there a, a plan in how all of this is, has played out? Um, how did you choose the opportunities that you um, jumped into? I wish there had been a plan, Holly. <laughs> it looks very um, planned. Yeah, look, I think I've always described my career as highly serendipitous and and having opportunities that I then took advantage of. And I think that's the same in most people's lives, that if you are open to opportunity and leave yourself open to possibility um, and you do the hard work and you make sure that you've got the right skills and, and attitudes and being prepared to pivot and see that new experiences are ultimately a very positive way of building. I don't think of it so much as building a career, and I don't. I, I suspect this is where men and women may be slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't ever set out to think there is a pinnacle I'm trying to get to or there is a, a level, you know, like I want to be a chief executive or I want to run something. That was never in my contemplation. First real big opportunity was that associateship with Justice Michael Kirby when he was at the New South Wales Supreme Court. And the serendipity in that is, is one of the earliest forms that I saw of gender equality because uh, Michael Kirby has, you know, he's not just a great human rights advocate, he puts into practice what he speaks about. And so back in those days, he was always keen to appoint both a young woman and a young man into his chambers as associates. And no other judge was doing that at the time. Wow. And it was, for me, it seemed like the most logical thing 
to me, and I'm sure to him, but it was kind of revolutionary in the in the. I course. can imagine, yeah. So, so to see that it worked very early again, serendipity. I was not the greatest law graduate around. I've got to tell you, um, it, was, it wasn't a brilliant um, degree, but it was a good, solid degree. But I'd shown interest in other things in the conversation we'd had in the interview, and he taught me a great lesson about. You know, the marks are one thing, but sitting and having a conversation with someone you're, you're seeking to employ comes down to a whole other set of attributes. And I'm just really lucky he saw something in me that um, that my scores didn't show. And that year working with with him in his, in his office and his chambers set me on a path about thinking deep, differently about the law and society and justice and human rights just by being in his orbit and watching him at, at work. So, and that serendipity has followed me elsewhere. And the only thing I'd say that I did that was a bit more active, was when I've been in roles where I clearly was struggling or not enjoying the work or really understood I wasn't very good at it, I haven't waited for someone else to kind of push me on or or sort of hung on and clung on to hope I could get better. I've generally taken decisions to leave. Yeah, and I think often those moments can feel uh, feel so courageous doing that and, and being prepared to walk away from the sure thing in hand and go out and seek something more. But I think well and truly what you've made, been able to accomplish over the course of your career shows in spades that the universe rewards courage and, and that relationship building and that passion being put to use where it uh, where it's best served. And so it was, wasn't so much courage at the time. Like, it's nice to look back and think it might have been, but <laughs> I had to make a, a decision. I needed to get out there and put my, test myself and, believe that by um, sticking with things I knew I was quite good at and look for things that really appealed to me and my passions and I took that risk and and I was very lucky because only a few weeks after leaving I had a call from a a very dear friend who rang and said I heard you've left if you're available to do something else I've got an idea for you and and that's where my my next stage of career took off and I he would never have called me if I was in um, good solid work just looking around for other options. How did how have you over your career, not just at that point in your life, worked out and identified who to put trust in, who to go to with those key issues, key decisions to get get the advice that you need to ensure that you're you're making the decision that's right for you and you, you're navigating it in the best way possible. Um, it's it's a really important question, and I think a lot of the time in my when I was younger, I did it a bit blinder. I didn't think deeply enough about who to put that trust in, and of course. When you're a younger person, you don't quite have the range of mentors and people that who get to know you deeply, who can help you. Sort of, you're grabbing at things. So I, um, in those early days, I really had to trust my family. Mm-hmm. I had to trust myself. So there's, I think, there's a bit about in here about self awareness and um, self respect. So I had to keep working with the fact that I knew that I had to do something. So the advice and counsel I needed was from people who could, who, who knew me. You choose the people who do know you, know your predicament and are prepared to give you some tough love but ultimately then back you in the decisions you're going to make. And I kept away from people who were saying, oh, don't take risks because more that they were more reflecting their own sense of need for security or, or even a nice feeling for me to stop me doing something they worried about but they didn't know me and didn't know my capacity. But I think as you go through your career, you then you meet people. There aren't many. I mean, this isn't like you get a small visible of people that you can go to I think one of the great realities of life is you get to know um, a handful of people who really get you, mm. who you can get back to and who know really what motivates you and what moves you and are prepared to listen and then work with you to, to help you come to your own decisions rather than trying to take a more paternalistic view about what they think might be good for you. 
I love that piece there about working with you to come to your own decisions. I think that's one of the key identifiers for me of the the healthiness of an advisor type or mentor type of relationship, whatever term people want to use, because it's not imposing it. It's sort of listening, guiding, molding uh, together, as opposed to, as you said, that that paternalistic view uh, that you can often see playing out in, in traditional relationships like that. Absolutely. And I think just having someone who will actually engage and actively listen to what it is you're saying is a, is a gift because we don't have many places where we can just be ourselves and say, this is, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I want to be, this is what I'm going through now, this is what I th- I'm thinking of doing. I think I, I find great, great comfort and have been, have been helped enormously by people who've listened to me and then sort of thrown back things I've said to test and help me work through that rather than immediately jumping to, well, why don't you do this? And I also hope in the, in the quasi-mentoring that I do, that really all I'm doing is it's a bit of a sounding board and using a bit of judgment and listening skills to reflect back to the person who needs that, some of their own wisdom um, and their own reflection to say, well, maybe you know what you really want to do. Maybe what you need from me is permission. Maybe you need um, just a bit of support um, and know that it will be here for you as you go through it. Um, and that, that's why I think about mentors. And I've, I've had a handful of extraordinary people like that in my life um, over the years. And I go back to them still to this day in those private conversations of what do you think? Am I, am I crazy? You know, and, mm-hmm. and most those people will say to me, talk me through it. Tell me how you're feeling. You know, let's, let's, let's think about um, what this means for you. Um, and of course, I can I'm, definitely say from personal experience, you are one of those mentors and I'm very grateful for it. Um, the way that you listen, the way that you, you play back, the insightful advice that you give, you definitely role model uh, what you're talking about admiring and the people that did that for you. I think um, that's very kind of you, <laughs> and I've been I've loved loved working with you, Holly. I learn everything. I, I don't think about being a sort of mentor is you learn more from the person you're with than you actually give. I think if, if it's a, I think that's generous. <laughs> no, I think you know well you know I've learned so much from you that that I wouldn't have understood at all about the the great work that you do, and I would I wouldn't have had a way of tapping into it or understanding what motivates you and and what has changed in a in a generation because I'm. You know, I'm much older than you now, and um, it reminds me about the you know being very mindful of these gaps in in generation and age, and gender and aspiration. And so, um, I think a, a high quality, trusting relationship that has some mentoring in it is actually one where both both of us are, are learning something and getting getting something very nourishing out of it. I wanted to ask you about your experience across the nonprofit sector, your roles in government, uh, corporate. You, you've worn so many hats, but I wanted to understand a bit about what you learn about influence and how to drive positive change. If you had to boil it down to a couple of a key nuggets that you could give people to say, if you, if you want to do a better job of this, these are some, some foundations you've got to make sure you lay or this is the approach you've got to take. What, what would they be? Okay, well, I'll start with the principles and then what I might do is backtrack and just talk a little bit about influences on me that help me get to those principles. Sure. Um, I think you've got to have strong personal integrity. So when, when you're trying to change anything, you've got to actually stand in your own self and think what is it about this issue or this matter that needs changing that I have a particular desire and set of skills to do and what brings me to this point where I you know, I check myself against my intent and, and am I the person to do this? Like is this the thing I'm going to do? I think it just, it's, a, it's a way of ensuring that you don't get pulled into something that ultimately isn't your thing to do or um, that you're not really engaged with or don't fully understand. So change, because it brings you to a second principle, you've got to be enduring and you've got to have resilience and you've got to keep getting back up every time the thing you're most wanting to advance is challenged and pushed back. I love that. Yep. And so 
I think your resilience comes from your self-respect and your self-awareness about why you're doing it and knowing you're playing for the long game. Change, sustainable change that really has impact does take time. Mm. And then the third leg of this would be you've got to be prepared to work with others. You've got ways of collaborating, listening, ensuring that you never get to a point where you think this is mine to change. This is, it's about we and about building unique and different sets of people. Um, they're often very strange bedfellows um, and learning to reach across divides, whether they're partisanship-type divides, political, gender, age, being less constrained by what having more people like yourself doing this but ensuring that the, the group that you are working with to affect change does represent the change you're seeking and has a capacity over that long time to really bring about that change. Mm. And I think there are other principles. You know, I think you've got to have fun doing it. It can't always be, you can't be angry doing it. Um, mm. you know, there is anger in protest and there's anger in, in those moments. But when you're creating change, you, you're creating movements, I think. And um, I heard a beautiful line from an Indigenous young leader recently at a, at a program I sat in on talking about how do we take um, moments to movements. Ooh, I like I that. Think part of that is about... It's all about, you know, the, the courage and persistence and the clarity. But it's also about sharing the fun of it and preparing for the long term and not being angry all the time. Mm. Um, I, I think I was an angry young woman for a while on gender-related type things and, you know, it was everything was unfair and, you know, every, and I'd speak up at meetings and want to have my voice heard <laughs> and, you know, in the moment it might have someone go, well, she's got a point. But actually most people sit around saying, oh, you know, I, I can't deal with that. I can't, what can I do with that angry comment? Uh, and, and I guess maybe age has softened me a bit, but I think I did learn early on respect for the other view, prosecuting Which is often one of the hardest things to observe when you're in those moments, isn't it? Absolutely. It's that yeah. take a deep breath, reflect and think. Actually, in these environments we work in, most people aren't nasty or, or um, d- determined. They're not, they're not evil. They just don't think the way you do or don't have the, um, the insights and the understanding of the problem that you do. And so I learned on a management team at, um, Insurance Australia group over many years, really led by the mentorship of Michael Hawker, who was the chief executive, how to prosecute an argument to a group of people who didn't even know really what I was talking about. <laughs> and he kept reminding me when I was raising sustainability issues in an insurance context, he said, you keep starting with the theory. You're not understanding that a lot of people around this table, um, the actuaries, the finance guys, the capital markets people, the underwriters, they don't know what your starting point is. So you take them into this world and confuse them and then you're kind of angry they don't get it. Step back and think about the world that you're trying to bring them to from their perspective. Um, Bring your colleagues with you. Um, Spend that time individually with them explaining what it is you're trying to do and then respect them by putting some of it in their language. And he gave me some amazing insights and tips as to how to bring along very senior executives to this broader debate around sustainable business, um, corporate responsibility, without offending them or making them feel like I just said they were bad people, which I think in my early days of being angry about it, you know, the effect I was having was probably telling people, look, I'm good and you're bad. And mm. that's not, that's not going to change anything and it makes, it makes change even harder for those that you want to bring along with you. One of the things I was I was thinking is I was reflecting through personal integrity and enduring resilience and working with others and the fun and the respect for the other view is, is wondering which one you'd been challenged most by over the course of your career. Uh, which one do you think probably we need to be most diligently focused on building our toolkit and getting ourselves the skills around because it's often the hardest to, to execute, I guess, or follow through on? It's a really hard question to answer. Um, it's a great question. I, th- I think 
The one I still struggle with is ensuring that I understand all of the multiple stakeholders affected by the change that um, that I want to be part of. Mm. At really understanding what that, what, where their perspectives are, and how to engage and and show respect whilst pushing hard for that change. And it takes an enormous amount of. Uh, I think you've got to be really quite patient and uh, have good self control and um, and engage respectfully. So it's for me, it's it that remains. It, and, and also, I think the thing I've learned along the way, Holly, and I've learned, I'm learning to this very day, is you make a big mistake if you think you've suddenly got the whole thing sorted and you you have you understand every moving part. Mm. I, I've, um, with um, Australia's Indigenous in issues, I would have said 10 years ago I understood the whole thing and, I, you know, I'm aiming for reconciliation. I'm sitting on the Reconciliation Australia board. I'd done a lot of work with Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. I'd been invited into communities to do work. You know, I thought I had a pretty good grip on things and I realised that I had a privileged white person's view of a lot of things and I, you know, that my learning on that topic in the Australian, for for us as a nation, um, I know very little and I've had to go back and re-kit myself with sort of um, listening skills again, thinking, empathy, um, understanding what my role might or might not be in any of this and um, and it's come at a time, of course, as we're re-debating and re-prosecuting the idea of do we celebrate Australia Day? Yep. I reckon, uh, you know, a, a couple of years ago I would have had a very firm view from my perspective. My view this year is very different. It's about listening and about what is I still to understand about what it means to be an Indigenous person in this country today. And so that act of listening as part of change is probably the thing that I come back, is the, is the and it's hard for any of us because there is a, there's a, when you want things to get better, whatever your particular field is, there is a, um, a desire to get, you know, get it done now and speed and maybe not understand the damage you cause on the way through. <laughs> um, on topics like this that are profound and affect the, the very being of, of people in this country, I'm, I'm still learning about that, about how not to be the expert and how not to have a view and, and offer a paternalistic solution, but just to rest in a moment of listening and reflection and support. And that's hard for those of us that want to get out there and change yeah. And it's interesting you say that because uh, I was reading, uh, I think it was an interview that you'd done at the launch of the new company directors magazine. You're one of the, the country's most prominent company directors and you were talking about, uh, I guess, the, the toolkit that a director mindset really needed. And I found it really interesting, uh, probably just because I think this is not a conversation you hear around director circles and I found it really refreshing that you said this, that the two of the most important things we need as directors is uh, self-awareness and humility was number one, both of which I think you alluded to in, in what you just said there. And I thought that that's very different from, and probably, again, it's a dated view that doesn't apply to that modern day context, but the idea of all-knowing, all-seeing, fountain of truth, that notion of, of sourcing stakeholder perspectives, keeping an eye to the future, having that preparedness to look in the mirror and, you know, adapt and grow yourself. This is a, a whole new evolution in the leadership and value-adding conversation that we're talking about in a variety of different roles in community and, and in business. And it's an interesting transition. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad you like that because that's I felt it very important at the time working with the team at Company Director to really think deeply about what is changing, what does need to change around boardrooms. And I think it's cultural and it's personal. You know, I think if you if you get to a point where you want to sit around the governance table of any organisation, whether it's a not-for-profit, a government board or a big public company board or a small public company board or a family company board, you, you've, if you've got that aspiration, you've probably got the basic uh, financial, regulatory risk and industry skills necessary for it because you wouldn't aspire to that if you hadn't really put that work in. So 
it, it then comes to what works around a group of governors or stewards of the organisation that will actually add to the, the role that the chief executive and the management team uh, are doing as the day-to-day operators of that, of that organisation. And, and increasingly I see, and I really enjoy seeing this in, in other directors and particularly the newer kind of directors coming onto boards, you observe this, their ability to say, I didn't understand that or I'm curious to take that matter further because I, I want to understand that more deeply or people deferring to each other in a room to say, you know more about that, I'd like to hear your view. And my recollection of being in an executive team and observing boards that we were working to back in the the 90s and the mm. early 2000s was a group of generally men um, of a particular age who felt that they were the experts and they were contributing on their expertise. And really there wasn't that more, I'm not going to say dangerous, it's a more, it's an open field. It's a safe space in many respects but for many it's a it's a it's an open field to then start to reveal what it is you're curious about or vulnerable vulnerable about that helps you bring about better decision making, and we're we're seeing the a real movement of that around board tables with very good chairs who I, I've watched orchestrate those conversations. We've given room and space to people who aren't the, haven't been the typical directors coming on to listen to them to try to build up the skills and knowledge base of the people um, in the room around these much more tricky complex issues that business. Um, and, and other boards are facing as we step up into a world where, where almost everybody is part of the social contract. We, we don't outsource this to government anymore or, or to the not-for-profit sector. We're much more all in this and mm. working how to play our role. So, and I, I feel very strongly that we do need to get more and more of those kind of skills in and around board tables and management teams and irrespective of, of the industry or the, um, or the sector it makes ultimately for much better decision-making and visioning and thinking about what lies ahead to give shareholders and stakeholders a much better sense of, of good governance. I wanted to ask you about diversity, a topic I know you're extremely passionate about, and, and I guess particularly the, the gender equality lens, though, that, that is a gateway to a much broader diversity conversation. You were the first woman appointed to the AFL Commission. I can remember the day that happened and how excited I was on the way to school reading that in the newspaper. I wasn't a baby, but I remember my excitement as a, as a sports fan, as a, as a football fan, thinking that there was going to be, you know, a female in charge of, of stewarding this game that I loved and having a say around the table and, and how significant that was. And I I know because I've spoken to you about it, how brimming with, with pride and excitement and joy you are at looking at where we are now with the AFLW and the, and the progress that's been made. But I wanted to go back to that appointment. You, you've talked about the fact you're proud of being a quota appointment, that that was how that, that took place at the AFL. I wanted to ask you about how that experience with the AFL shaped your view on, on quotas and gender equality. It's changed my view on this topic more in the later years than it did at the very time it was happening, but it was a, it was a very important moment when it did happen. And so it takes us back to 2005, so we're now talking about 13 years ago, and I got a call from a headhunter saying I've been commissioned by the chairman of the AFL, it was then the late Ron Evans, to find a group of women that can be interviewed to be uh, considered to be appointed the first woman commissioner of the AFL. And he said, you're one of the ten names. And my starting point wasn't, oh, my goodness, this is going to be great for women, or, oh, my goodness, this is, this is about gender equality. My first response was, oh, good, good grief. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I know nothing about football. I've, I, I follow the game. I love the game. But, you know, seriously. And so I was in this sort of state of mind of, goodness me, this is crazy town stuff. And um, I didn't reflect on it deeply at the time. But I did reflect on the fact that they were doing something unique because 
this was there were only women being interviewed and they'd clearly taken the view, the chairman had taken the view at the time, that something had to be fixed. I didn't think about it as quota. I wouldn't have used that term at the time. Mm-hmm. I would have talked about it as sort of a structural uh, fix that the chairman had identified. And the more I, that weekend I researched the level of influence of women in the game and realised that without game, without women there was no game and the mm. profound numbers of women in percentage terms who were um, fans um, economically invested through membership, um, watching the broadcasts, turning up the games, um, bringing up their sons to be footballers, all of that stuff, I suddenly got the, I understood what Ron Evans um, and his team were doing, which was to say we can't keep going this way with just all men around this table. As I got into the process, and you know, I was very, very fortunate to be the last woman standing through a, an exhaustive process that took quite a lot of, a lot of time, I came to, re- so, and, and I was asked to join the commission. It was a very profound moment for me, terrifying in retrospect, um, but very well supported by Ron Evans and the commission at the time. Um, in the days following my appointment, I, I got a huge amount of negative feedback from men across the game, often anonymous, just saying, you're going to soften the game, this is rubbish. I mean, the language was... Was I can still remember some of the media reaction. It was pretty yeah, just, this is And this is tokenism and yep. if you had a voice in there, it's, it's about softening the game and stopping the boys doing this stuff and what, what, what's happened to the AFL, it's gone soft. I kind of had been prepared for that, but I also then um, was at functions where I was confronted by a number of women who came up to me and said, towards the effect, look, don't feel too good about that position because I wouldn't have done what you've done because you were never really tested against men. And so how do you know you were really the best commissioner for that appointment? Like, you know, wow. if you're not tested against men and a full, the full available talent pool, it's not really merit, is it? So you'll never know. And I reflected on that for months and months, thinking about what my response should be because I was, I was sort of hurt in one respect that what I, I had imagine. felt yeah. pride and pride for the other women who had been part of that process. I thought, what am I going to do with this? And I thought, actually, I've got to talk about it because I want, I want other women to know that we should never think about the fixing of structural, of historical structural exclusion as, a, as anything other than being dealt with by merit. So the process that I and the other ten women, other nine women had been through was all about merit. We were put through our processes in ways that men who'd been previously appointed to the commission had never been tested on. Our commercial skills, our PR skills, our football knowledge, our ability to be in a meeting and be constructive. Now, they, they'd tested all of that, whereas they'd never done that with men before. And they did it because they wanted to make sure they did have a meritorious appointment. Yep. And so, so what I've done over recent years is as I reflect back on that time is to say, actually, we should call that what it was. It was a quota appointment. Ron Evans would never have called it that, but that's what it was because they were saying we must put a woman on the board and she'll only be tested against other women. And so I now say to women, I would never, there wouldn't be an appointment to the AFL Commission. There wouldn't have been a woman appointed for many, many years under the let's just have it bubble up through the normal processes. just wouldn't have happened because if the merit um, system had been in place previously, there would have been women there already. So mm. it had been working against us. And so I use that principle now for any appointment to say if we're going to fix this um, historical and entrenched imbalance that has had such a poor showing of women across our society in leadership roles and governance roles, then the women themselves, I I would encourage them to be comfortable with those appointments and wear that quota with, you don't have to call it quota, but wear that appointment with pride because you're part of that change that gets us into those rooms, that gets us back to um, the best possible governance arrangements that does value diversity, where our voices are heard and where we can lead. But we're not going to fix it by by pretending that we're going to get there by the processes that are currently around because we might feel a little bit une- you know, uneasy about it. And I think the more women who are appointed like this who support other women who are approached, yeah, that's the, that's our role to give those women comfort that you're not um, a token 
you are the merit-based appointment. It just has to happen this way um, because otherwise that change won't occur. I wanted to ask you, what did, what did you learn over your time in the AFL? What did, what did sport give you an insight into? Oh, my goodness, um, so much, Holly. I am forever grateful for that, that opportunity and that time um, and for the generosity of the sport itself because once we got over how the appointment was made and we just got onto the work and, and I was then joined by other women on the commission, so the gender thing at that level um, really wasn't the issue. I, what, what I was able to learn and be part of in a sort of Australian sporting context was the profound role that sport plays in our society. Um, I've heard it described by much better experts in the um, social and health fields as the silent social worker. I and, love that. Yeah, and I, I can't think of it any better. In addition to what it does, just at the basic level of joy of, you know, getting people in teams out there, exercising, being part of communities, having that joyful experience of competing, everything that sport can do from a very early age right the way through our lives, there is this other thing that it's doing all the time, which is being part of, of societies and part of communities and often doing a lot of heavy lifting for families and communities where, where nothing else is available. And sports, just one of the, it, it's a uniting force. It's a, it, it often breaks down all the barriers of other forms of diversity, um, creed, religion, race, um, age, the, the influence it's having just through the development of AFLW, the fact that we have a respectful engagement with women, the impact of that is not just for those heroic, wonderful pioneers, uh, the players, but it's going right across our society telling women that they can, not just in sport, but they are equal equal members of a society where they can they can set their sights and do the same things that their brothers um, and fathers have done. I've often thought, you know, if you can shift sport, you can shift this country. You know, it's got such an yeah. unbelievable cultural influence, as you said. Yeah. I love that idea of the silent social worker. That's a brilliant phrase. You also think, I mean, I know some people don't like it when sport gets involved in big social issues, but when you see um, millions of people watching broadcasts that support Indigenous recognition, but they're seeing it through the eyes of their sports heroes, or mm. you see climate change described by players about what it's doing to sports grounds and what, what, why, why climate change might matter to someone who's an elite athlete, or, you know, hearing Pat Cash come out most recently and talk about his views on Australia Day because he was a, you know, a, a much-loved Australian iconic sportsman. These are, I think, often our sports leaders and our sporting organisations help us unpack things that politicians and business leaders and community leaders often struggle with because people receiving that information through their sports lens, mm. I think, have a more open mind. I wanted to ask you, I know one of the reasons you're such a highly regarded board director in, in this country is because is you've got such a, a, a fascination and an, a, just an extraordinary appetite for the future and trends and emerging issues and, and things that probably um, others don't see on the horizon that need to be brought to consideration in the here and now. If you had to just say one thing you think we're almost talking about too much, we're overly focused on, uh, and one thing we're not talking about enough, what would you give your two nods to? I have a, I'll take a bit of a macro look at this, if you don't mind. Go for um, it. Holly. I think the thing we are trapped in at the moment, and it's not just around board tables, it's it's in our political class, it's in our, our kind of general national, international relations areas. We seem to be trapped in trying to put everything into a particular box and, and in many respects talk about political correctness. Mm. And, and often that leads to very partisan, um, very um, binary discussions. I, I just find it, I find it very disturbing that we don't yet have the quality of national, local and, and other kind of conversations where we unpack these very complex issues with a generosity about all views and try to come through with 
what's just the right thing? What are we really dealing with here? Let's yep. take away the labels, the binary labels of what where people come from when they raise these things and let's have a proper open conversation. So I look at the work that you do with Emergent and I look at the work that the Foundation for Young Australians does on trying to unpack why we do have a crisis with youth unemployment and the way we think about young people today. You know, a, a binary view is not going to help us unpack that research and data and find a solution. Mm. So I think we're spending too much time in the binary <laughs> um, and in the, the um, my view versus your view and not enough time creating safe collaborative spaces where we let ourselves be a bit vulnerable and open up to the, what the data is telling us and to have a, a, um, a conscious attempt at fixing things where we, we, we can actually set an aspiration to make things better. And, and that then means for me that you've got to have the right people, the right mix of people, the diversity of thought and experience capable of conducting those and being part of those conversations. Um, so that, that takes me to the point of why you can't have a monocultural or mm. you know, people in power anywhere. The, the way I would kind of think about that for my own career is um, I have been the, the most fortunate beneficiary of the things I've learned by experiencing people in the various parts of our communities that we often compartmentalise. Mm. So I've I've had the joy of working with really senior bureaucrats who've devoted their life to good policy and I've had the joy of working with the international aid and development community who work through the not-for-profit world to, you know, into the international aid community, um, all you know, charity-based and, um, and, I've, and I've worked in, in business and um, and and look and sport and you know multiple layers of of how our communities operate, and I, the thing I notice when you're in those groups with people who've never really understood the other, they talk about the other as the other. Mm. But you know um, the best conversations are those with people who say, "Look, I, I know how the corporate world works, or I know how government works, and I've got respect for the people who work in those areas." Yeah. The, the saddest moments for me have been in a government meeting where someone has said, well, of course, gov- um, business is just about profit and people in business don't actually care about community or society. Now, mm-hmm. I know that's patently wrong because I work with people in business who care as much about the future of society and are valuable contributors, um, are involved in all sorts of good works, charitable and otherwise, um, but, who, you know, who, who, if they're defined just simply by being in a profit, a profitable company, you'll never get to know that those people have a contribution to make well beyond that company. And so um, I think the best advice I can give is for people to reach out a bit and maybe put themselves at some personal risk by engaging with um, parts of sectors that may at the moment feel like they are the other and maybe get involved with those people and know what motivates them because this is going to be or this remains a joint effort for all of us to work in collaboration. Um, And it's no accident that the way in which the sustainable development goals that were brought about by the United Nations in 2015 with a product for the first time, not of the UN, but of a UN-supported process that involved civil society Mm. working alongside business. The rules have changed and they've been changing for a while. We are all in this social contract and if companies don't pull their weight, they'll be punished. If governments don't do the right thing, they'll be punished. If the not-for-profit and civil society can't work alongside this, they will find their role diminished and we've got to to find a way to keep all of those, those sectors working at their highest principles for us all to have a, a, a great outcome and you know that has that has been a profound shift in the time I've been in business. Sam I'm so grateful for your time I've just got two final questions we like to ask all of our guests uh, to wrap up the first one is uh, for those who might be in a, in a position where they're capable of influencing change and thinking about how to do that or perhaps an aspiring change agent coming up the ranks what would be the best bit of, of advice you could give them? I'd say the very basic and profound 
recommendation or offer, which is just know thyself. If you know who you are, you know what you care about, you know what your capability is and you know what it is you, you really want to influence and change, that is the first step to creating change because taking that time to know who you are and knowing what you care about and where your passions lie and what your own capability is alongside others helps set that course to, to actually keep you focused because it's an endurance race. And mm-hmm. to stay in that, to stay and create change, to be able to come back to a centre of yourself to know, actually, I care about myself, I know what I care about, I know who I am and I know why I'm doing this, I think is, a, is, a, is an important starting point. And it does, it, change is hard as we've discussed and it's a long process. And so knowing who you are in that process and what your role is, um, I think is, is probably, it's just a foundational piece of advice I'd, I'd offer. I love that. And the other one I wanted to ask you, for those who are listening today, what's the call to action that you'd like to leave them with? If you've got something you're working on, be emboldened, step up, feel powerful in your own um, in your own self. If you do know yourself and you can then step up, there is something about getting on and, 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 and with the doing and mm. building groups of people who you want to work with and taking those risky first steps and embracing it. I'd also say that the biggest choices I made in life were always assisted by reaching out to people, sometimes who I didn't know terribly well, to seek their, their counsel. This comes back to the mentoring. Do reach out to people, even if it's just one conversation, to ask the questions that most bother you. Um, seek their guidance if, they can, if they're the person that can most help. Put aside any sense of, you know, why me, why they won't take the call. Or The worst thing that can happen is someone can say, look, I can't help you. The best thing is that someone unlocks that mm-hmm. bit of information or that bit of that course of action you need to take with their assistance. When I worked for Paul Keating, he always said that, that leadership was defined, was, a, was the combination of courage and imagination. So awesome. Yeah, that courage to stand up and imagination is important. You know, stay curious, engage in things that take you further. Um, I use the arts and sport for that. You know, go and it makes sure you have experiences that thrill you, that challenge you, that you know demand your attention or you know make you think deeply. And and um, whether that's in a theatre or reading a book or reading poetry or there's so much more around us that we can access if we're curious um, and want to use our imagination. And I think that's how we'll create really great sustainable change and enjoy the journey along the way. Sam, I'm, I'm so grateful for your insights on a regular basis, but I'm particularly grateful for you making the time to so generously share today on Coffee Pods. I'm looking at the page of notes that I've written down. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's going to be takeaways in our chat for everyone out there who's seeking to apply their passion to drive a positive change in the world. So thank you so much for, for joining us on Coffee Pods. Holly, it's been an absolute delight and I love listening to your coffee pods So, um, and I love your work. So all the very best for Emergent this year and I hope you have a great 2018. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.